0: Louisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we talked to Dylan Wade Roskems idris He is from Neuro, the Montreal Neurological Institute Hospital from the McGill University. And we had the pleasure of talking with him about how Neuro became an open science institute. <music>
1: Um, my name is Dylan Roskams Idris. I'm the Open Science Alliance Officer for the Neuro, otherwise known as the Montreal Neurological Institute and Hospital in Montreal, Canada.
2: Is it connected to the McGill University? Because I've seen just on the website that there's somehow McGill University is part of it? Or is this part of the McGill University? How does it work? It is.
1: Um, It's slightly more complicated than that, given that there's a hospital that's not technically run by McGill that's also integrated in there. But yes, it is an institute operating within McGill as a larger institution.
0: What did you say you were here? The Open Science?
1: Open Science Alliance officer, which basically means that uh, my role is to understand what's going on at the Neuro in terms of our open science mission and then go out to other institutes, primarily in Canada, primarily doing neuroscience research and convince them that adopting an open science model is the way to go.
2: Okay, this sounds like, well, that's basically the utopia we want to be, that there is an institution that says we are an open science institute. What does it actually mean in practical terms?
1: Okay, so. It all started back in, well, 2014, when they really were considering turning into an open science institute. They then went through about 18 months of consultations with the various stakeholders, patients, researchers, trainees, in order to hash out what exactly that would mean and any concerns that everybody had. And then we produced our open science guiding principles, which address making sure that um, publications are published open access making sure that data is shared no later than the date of a publication on which it relies, that we're sharing reagents, that we're sharing software, that we're sharing all other materials, whether they're patient-derived or plasmids or whatever. So the idea is to make sure that everything that goes into an experiment or comes out of an experiment is shared as openly as possible.
2: Um, Sounds kind of radical, isn't really, that's how science is supposed to be working, but were there any, I mean, who who started this whole idea? Was it, was this like one driving force behind it? Or was time ripe? And why you? I mean, it's so many
1: questions. I mean, there are a lot of awesome. questions. One, uh, just to, to kind of take those in order a bit at a time. Um, one of the really driving forces behind it was our director, Guy Rouleau, Dr. Guy Rouleau, who was in a lot of conversation with Aled Edwards from the Structural Genomics Consortium. And the Structural Genomics Consortium has been operating on an open science basis for a long time. Um, and so after quite a number of conversations between some of the neuro leadership and Aled and recognizing that there were some serious problems going on in neuroscience research, they decided that open science was the way to go because we need to figure out what's going on when it comes to neurological diseases. We just don't know enough as of right now. And the thinking was that the old model of siloed research, of like these little incremental advances taken in a linear fashion, just wouldn't get us to where we need to be to try to reduce the burden on those suffering with neurological diseases.
2: Do you feel um, that since you turn into the, well, towards the open science mission principles, that the rate of discovery has increased.
1: Mm. Like, could you say that? Uh, I mean, that's a tough question. Because I know it's only
2: been a few years, so it's it's really difficult to assess. But
1: I mean, it's only been a couple of years, and it's the kind of thing where at the same time we're trying to set up metrics to measure exactly that. But mm-hmm. there aren't established norms for measuring those types of metrics. So what we can say is that through the two like main pushes that the neuro undertook, which is to set up the CBIG repository, which is the Clinical Biological Imaging and Genetics Repository, where we collect samples from patients and participants that are moving through the hospital. So and it's like a
2: biobank, right? It's like a-, a
1: biobank, exactly. Okay. Um, but kind of creating a model of the institution itself and mm-hmm. the clinical activities that are going on and the research that's going on and then being able to expand that beyond the walls of the neuro, which actually is exactly in line with the mission the neuro has had since it since it was founded. So it was founded in 1934 by Wilder Penfield, who you may know from the homunculus and the it smells like burnt toast um, experiments. And the idea, uh, unique idea at the time, was to create an institution where clinical and research activities were integrated. And so you'd have insights from the clinic impacting how research was conducted, and then insights from research impacting how clinical care was provided. So with CBIG, what they're trying to do is take this kind of model, but extend it out to the entire world, knock down the walls of the institution insofar as that is possible. Mm -hmm. And then this feeds directly into the early drug discovery unit, which is the other main kind of core platform that they've been developing, which is where they actually take samples from patients and turn them into uh, iPSC cells and then into, so uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, and then into neuronal stem cells and then into neurons of various different types so they can test the therapeutic effect of compounds on cells specific to patients, to the patients from which they were collected.
2: Mm -hmm. I was just thinking to be devil's advocate, because basically um, it sounds like, well, any well-functioning research institution, right, where you have a biobank, I mean, most larger institutions, like, you know, respectable institutions and do have some kind of biobank uh, uh, storage capacity, right? Also, this idea of working uh, with patients is also right now not a exotic one right so where you have clinic uh, clinical research and uh, basic research molecular research combined and at least you know in common consortia or uh well you have these collaborations established right um so and also having all this technology platforms where you do all the screenings and so on i mean it's it's also there. I'm just thinking about our own institution where we based at Max Delbox Centrum. Uh, we kind of have all of that. I, I mean, I would don't compare, this, compare the scales or anything, but I mean, we have all these elements. So I wonder, what is this that makes the open science label there unique? You know I, you know, I mean? Basically, how is that more than a regular uh, screening platform or regular biobank?
1: Right. So, taking the CBIG, and EDDU, respectively. Open sharing has been baked into how these two platforms have been designed since the very beginning. So the open framework uh, of CBIG, the open ethics framework that they've designed, is specifically designed to enable them to share as much data as possible while protecting participant privacy as well as sharing the materials um, through an open transfer agreement that eliminates a lot of the intellectual property-related concerns that can often get in the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And with the EDVU, they're sharing all of the protocols that they develop in order to develop IPSC lines, how they do assays, they're doing a lot of training, um, and working with pharmaceutical companies um, and releasing data from those collaborations. So the idea is, you're right, the basic idea of having a repository and an area for doing screenings or a platform for doing screenings is not, you know, game changing or, you know, unique in the world. I think what is unique is that Open has been baked into both of these platforms from the very beginning, with the idea being that it would provide a resource that would provide physical materials and data to external researchers and companies and then those external researchers and companies would recontribute what they discover to see big to make it ever richer and ever better.
2: Mm-hmm. So this is kind of similar concept to our open um, open screen platform that we have here. We did an episode on that um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: well, in the days. <laughs> but um, I wonder, because you just said something that I find extremely interesting. Um, so you said working with pharma companies... And releasing the results from that work. I mean, wow, that sounds kind of heretic. I mean, that would, well, usually everybody just screams, no, you cannot do that. This is not going to work. Never. How do you solve that?
1: So, one of the ways that we solve it is by having these unique IPSC lines that are extremely attractive to pharma companies. So, a pharma Uh company might come and say, we have a library of 100 molecules that we want screened against these particular sets of cell lines. We say, okay, that makes sense. Some of those molecules might be patented. Some will be open uh, or rather in the public domain. We'll run that. And then the plan is to release all of that data um, as much as possible. So by attracting pharma with having the Best possible cell lines for curing particular neurological diseases. And this also has to be put in the background of the fact that there really haven't been major advances in treating neurological diseases in decades. We still use like L-DOPA and L-DOPA-derived treatments to treat things like Parkinson's. Um, And there haven't been uh, disease-modifying treatments to come out for Alzheimer's or for Huntington's or for ALS and all of those things are diseases that the EDDU is concentrating on. Um, so it, we're really following, not exactly, but pretty closely on the uh, model generated by the Structural Genomics Consortium, which is mm-hmm. have excellent science involve as many stakeholders as possible to distribute the cost so we have philanthropic funding we have industry funding we have institutional funding and public funding so it doesn't cost way too much for anybody to come in Um, and of course if a pharma company is going to come to you and want to work on this the library of molecules that they're going to want to look at are ones that they've already been doing work on So any information that gets generated, any data that gets generated on that is going to be of most relevance to them. And if it's a true collaboration where you're actually working with the company and the researchers at the company, as opposed to just contracting out the research, then you also transfer tacit knowledge. So, you know, if they come in for trainings, they pick up things as they go, as they're Trained in conducting these assays that aren't easy to communicate, you know, in a paper or over a phone or something along those lines. There's actually experience and knowledge in the practice of doing something. So these are all the arguments that we try to bring forward. Now, it doesn't mean that every single pharma company is really into it, but one, um, Takeda has been probably our greatest supporter, but we're also working with Merck and a number of other companies.
2: But so what happens if the i'm um, just because we've been talking about ip lately on the show and uh-huh. um i'm just wondering what happens then if um so the the pharma company is coming in because you 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 have a unique selling point you you have the expertise you have something they really want and they wouldn't get otherwise so they have to commit to this uh, open science principles and release the data and um basically yeah release the the research that they've been doing on that right um but how do they um I mean, is there any licensing, patenting? What? How do you protect the IP, or is there any protection at all?
1: So they may come with molecules that they have already patented. Okay. In, in which case, where they're just paying to have those molecules or to generate more information and have those molecules validated, which is perfectly fine because you can you can release all of the data. Um, mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, I don't want to get into too many of the niceties of intellectual property law, but there are abilities to do things like provisional patents and things like that. The idea is that we don't generate any more IP directly out of the neuro, but that doesn't mean that that can't lay the groundwork for further IP development done by private companies. In fact, that would be fantastic. And it doesn't mean that we say, "Oh no, that thing that you're bringing here is patented." So you know, stay away.
2: Okay. Now, I mean, I think it's just pretty fantastic to hear that because this is usually the argument where, um, whenever you talk with people about open science and collaborations, not like, oh, yeah, yeah, but you know, with companies, that no, that's not going to fly because oh, they have to you know protect. But this is, a this is actually very um, nice take on it, and also very. Um, in a way, elegant solution how you can work in um, industry uh, and academic corporations without, you know, with a win-win for everybody. So
1: that's really cool. I mean, that's the idea.
2: Yeah. I, I also, uh what you said in the beginning, what I found really fascinating, um, the idea of that you actually had this 18 months of consultations with mm-hmm. different stakeholders before you developed your open science principles. Can you just, Talk a bit more about that. Tell us a bit more how it worked and who was involved, and yeah, just the, the process. I think is very exciting. Sure. <laughs> it's, it's so there were
1: a couple exotic. of <laughs> a couple of different groups to consider here, right? This was there was the leadership who really wanted to do this open science thing, and then there were obviously the researchers and the stakeholders within the institution, including patients and research participants. And then there we had an external group headed by Professor Richard Gold at the law school here, um, who has significant experience with like, social science and qualitative research. And he ca- came in and conducted consultations with a wide variety of stakeholders to assess their concerns about the first set of proposed principles their potential needs, any potential barriers and roadblocks that they had, would then come back, we'd sit down and reassess and redesign, and then come back to them in kind of this recursive way to see whether uh, concerns have been ameliorated. And through uh, roundtables and like uh, town hall consultations and announcements, and in person interviews and consultations, we figured out that in the vast majority of researchers thought that going open was a really good idea. There was some concerns. One, yes, around the IP thing, but that's actually a minimum of researchers who are concerned about that. The vast majority of researchers are really doing, scientific research because they're fascinated with the problem that they're engaged in and they want to dig down through the mysteries of the universe as much as possible and another major concern was that it takes a lot of work to make everything that comes out of an institution open and That is something that we've been finding over the last couple of years. It takes a heck of a lot of work and resources and buy-in and collaboration and recursive consultation in order to try to make sure that we really can get to the point where everything that gets reported in a paper, so all of the data underlying it, all the software underlying it, all of the samples underlying it, reagents underlying it, are all openly shared. Did you develop any support
2: structures for that? Do you have like data stewards or uh, librarians who support the researchers? How how did you solve the, the workload issue?
1: Okay, so luckily for us, there's actually a pretty strong history within the neuroinformatics field of open sharing. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for this dealing with like replicability problems and trying to get statistical power when the signal you're looking for isn't that much greater than the noise. So there was a recognition within the field that there really needs to be open sharing in some form or another in order to actually meet the rigorous standards that science sets for itself. And so there was a fair amount of internal expertise for that. Where we've been concentrating for the last couple of years is really getting the CBIG repository and the EDVU up and running. And TOSI, which is the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute, the kind of little node or unit within the neuro tasked with making this open science thing happen, makes sure that we are made available for the uh, whoever at the institution who needs to get information about publishing openly. I I connect people and work with folks at the Neuro Library, um, and we generate and gather resources for you. If you want to share this particular data set, you can do so here. Here are the standards for you being able to do so most effectively within your field. And we're now moving into a phase where we're building a lot more of the data curation and knowledge dissemination and training and all of those things just because over time we've come to realize that one obviously we're not the only ones engaged in open science there's all sorts of really interesting companies nonprofits, university efforts that are doing open excellent work in enabling open science and two we can't just try to build our own solutions and then say, this is open science, because Mm -hmm. open science is something that's being defined by those who actually do it and those who are creating the tools to enable it. So we're engaged right now in really reorganizing the governance structure of TOSI to try to make sure that it's responsive to stakeholder needs develops relationships with existing open science efforts and just disseminates the knowledge about how to use existing solutions rather than the perhaps naive approach of trying to build solutions ourselves.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely, you're not alone. (laughs) I mean, there are really amazing initiatives out there and that have accomplished already so much and so much to build on already. I think um, we did come across quite a lot of um, people just doing their kind of own thing because not really realizing that someone else has already done. Uh, Maybe something similar that could be just combined,
1: but... Isn't isn't that fascinating, though? Right. We're, We're in this field where we're trying to break down silos between researchers, but then the efforts to break down those silos are themselves siloed and duplicative.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but you know, everybody wants to be the first. And today silo, maybe I don't know. It's uh, I kind of have to think of this Monty Python uh, life of Brian the, was the People's Front of Judea uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> versus the yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> the, the Judea Front of the, the Judean yeah.
1: People's Front. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: It does feel like that a bit, but I think this is also one of those uh, kind of um, well childhood illnesses in a way. I mean, I don't think open science is in a childhood stage still. I mean, it's already kind of quite mature. But uh, I think there is a lot of that is basically people awakening and realizing, okay, I want to do something and just doing something and then not really, you know, having the time or being aware of that you can actually look that someone else already had that idea maybe or there are
1: more of these people. Yeah. I think not having the time is a big one because a lot Mm -hmm. of the people who are engaged in this are researchers who love open science, but their priorities often involve, you know, making, doing grant applications, doing experiments, um, mentoring students, teaching. Um, So trying to provide support services uh, just to, like, you know, take people's ideas and make sure that they actually happen is one huge thing. And then another huge thing is, just to get back to your point of, like, some people just want to be first. I think that that's another part of how the previous set of the previous way that science was done, which is trying to be the first and have priority, is being transplanted into the open science movement and is something that you know we're learning that we have to try to combat in the science itself, but also in the way that we're generating solutions.
2: Mm. I think the current strange times might actually might actually help a bit.
1: I think it's huge. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 is terrible, but it is making people turn and pay attention to open science in a way that they never have before. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the major reasons for this is that there has never been a vaccine for this type of virus. So if we look at the fact that the closed science system has never been able to produce a vaccine for this type of virus, even with the SARS scare a number of years ago, people are saying, okay, we have to clearly do something different to try to solve a problem that has not been solved before and to solve it in record time because people need to be able to get back outside and get to work and live their normal lives. Mm.
2: It's quite amazing because... um it's very anecdotal, okay? So it's not really there's no statistics behind it and it's very anecdotal, but I do have some voices. Um, well, basically saying, I mean, the older researchers go like, Oh yeah, it's just uh just a fad. It will go away. So once we solve this thing, it's just gonna be business as usual, going back to normal. Mm-hmm. And why more the like younger researcher generation uh, going, Oh yeah, finally we can do science the way we want to do
1: science. Yes. Like, the generational is, is the divide world. is huge. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: And I, I really hope that it's not going to be playing against the open science. But I think it's once it's there and everybody sees the benefits, it's kind of hard to get rid of it.
1: Yeah. And it might take a while for there to be a significant culture shift. You know, mm. uh, we want to be able to make this, you know, if, if we could make open science the way that science is conducted tomorrow, we would because we think it's the better way of doing science. It's the way that actually capitalizes on the values underlying science in terms of unbiased and systematic research that then is shared and confirmed by others. That's how science works, as a social activity. But those ideals always have to be embedded within the larger historical and cultural context. And the fact is, a lot of the folks who are in power, and this is something I find... In my own work, when I try to go out to other research institutes, they don't think that there's something particularly wrong with the current system or they're comfortable with the way that the current system works. And so they're not particularly motivated to change. But younger researchers, a lot of whom have been sharing information online in an open fashion about everything in their lives, maybe even a bit too much, (laughs) (laughs) um, have. Like they've, they've taken to this like a fish to water.
2: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So how do you deal
0: with that when people, when people are not feeling like they need to change?
1: I try to deal with it as gently as possible. To just bring it back to what we're doing at an academic institution is trying in as best a way as possible through unbiased and systematic investigation of the mysteries of the universe to create truths that will last a little bit longer. There's a phrase in science that I like a lot, which is it's not about the truth, the capital T truth, but it's about the truth for now. Because things always change. Theories change. Experimental methods change. You're never going to have a theory that is going to be the be-all and end-all. We've found the mind of God and solved things forever. But you can at least try to create a truth that lasts a little bit longer and is maximally useful. And right now, what we're finding, I think, is that we're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of the truths that we've developed with a closed system. And the only way of developing better truths, of developing better models, better biomarkers, is by working together, combining our expertise, combining resources, working together to set standards within fields, whether it's about data formats or analysis methods or whatever. I try to just show people and convince people that if you want to do science in the best way that you possibly can and have the beneficial effect that motivated you to get into science in the first place, open science is really the only way to do that.
2: Dylan, do you have uh, hiring policies to match that? Because the, the common argument against that is like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. But you know, I have a career to think about. And if I don't publish in nature, um, you know, I'm not going to have a career and I have to take care of my students. If I open up all old data, maybe, you know, some people still need to a while before they can publish or finish their thesis, whatever. I mean, all kinds of arguments. Um, so, how do you, do you have any like hiring policies crediting the open science
1: way? So, there's a couple of things to add to that. One is that even just declaring our intention to be an open science institute caused a number of younger researchers who could have gone to Harvard and could have gone to Princeton or Stanford to move and take up positions at the Montreal Neurological Institute. So what I think that shows is that there's an appetite for open science Uh in that younger generation of PIs second (laughs) and trainees. Um, And second, we have not full, but some limited control over our internal promotion and tenure and hiring practices. And while it's been kind of informal so far, we're working right now to formalize, okay, what criteria are we going to add into there that reflect open science practices? What can we say you should include this in your CV, whether it's how much data you've released openly, whether it's have you been working on an open source uh, experimental software platform, or how many open access articles have you published. So we're trying to add that into the uh, promotion and tenure practices. All of this takes a fair amount of consultation with the university itself and with the researchers themselves, because unlike being a private company that can set its own policy and its own hiring practices, we are an institute embedded within a larger institution, so embedded within McGill University. And so some of the policies we have to at least vet with them or collectively develop with them. And unlike employees at a corporation, academic researchers have and should have a fair amount of academic freedom when it comes to determining how they want to conduct their research, which means that you don't just want to come in and through some form of executive fiat say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Now you all have to change um, everything that you're doing in terms of how you're publishing and how you're sharing and all of that. It really has to be a positive and incremental approach as much as it would be really great to be able to say okay we have complete control we're going to entirely rejigger our hiring and promotion and tenure and all of our internal practices so that open science ensuring reproducibility and replicability is the consideration
2: so you're mainly working with a carrot
1: basically yeah that's the For a lot of reasons. One, I mean, working with sticks generally causes some form of resentment. And Mm -hmm. two, we actually do believe this is the better way of doing science, and that the people who are within the institution and the institution itself will come to realize that, those who have Mm -hmm. not already. And there are quite a number within the institution who are pretty hardcore open science advocates. So empowering them and getting them to convince their peers is going to be way more effective than the director coming down and sitting in front of everybody and saying, "Okay, everything is changing."
2: Yeah, although the stick approach, and I mean, like seeing the European landscape of,
1: uh, especially the publishing um,
2: policies now or um, requirements. Yeah, funding policies. Yeah, I mean, but just looking at uh, you know uh, how now a lot of. uh, a whole number of European countries just basically quit the Elsevier subscriptions and yes. um, adopted. I mean, in Germany there's this project deal with um, with Wiley and Springer, and I mean, this is kind of the the stick model um, where you basically force uh, the institutions to publish in a certain way um, because there is no other way. Oh yeah, there is no money, right? Otherwise, oh yeah.
1: Um, we talked to provincial and federal governments, trying to say that you absolutely should have open access and open data policies.
2: Mm. yeah i mean like for example if you have a grant from european union you have to publish open access um there are some strange problems with that but okay that's a different topic but, uh, yeah uh timelines and who pays for the open access and so on. but um uh, that's a different story but there are like this mandatory uh you know ideas basically embedded in in the money flow um similar to um you have to have some kind of dissemination, public engagement strategy in your projects. I wonder if you adopted any of this kind of stick model as well, like that you fund certain projects in a certain way, if they are more open access or open science than others.
1: Or So anything that the neuro funds, either through its discretionary funding or through the money from the endowment from Mr. Tannenbaum, I guess I can go into a little bit of the history of that. When we declared ourselves an open science institute, we got $20 million endowed from Larry Tenenbaum. And so we use 10, the revenue from 10 million is used for internal development, which generally comes out to about half a million a year. And then the revenue from the other 10 million is used for trying to convince other institutes, i.e. my job. Mm-hmm. So anything that we fund open a hundred percent at the time so for example with that external funding we have seed projects where we reach out to other institutes we find people who already either want to develop some open sharing strategy whether it's policies best practices infrastructure um, and you know we'll give them a, a relatively small grant something like a hundred thousand dollars that's then matched by that institution but one of the Requirements there is that anything that gets developed needs to be released openly. So anything that we fund through the money over which we actually have control is open. And then we try to bring people's attention to the fact that yes, if you're getting money from CIHR, technically you're supposed to be publishing open access or at least be making things open access within a certain time frame afterwards. So there is a bit of a stick. But when it comes to an institute that operates on between thirty and fifty million dollars a year in grant funding from various different agencies, we can only apply the stick approach to the stuff over which we really have control.
2: Okay, so yeah, if you would summarize kind of like a checklist, or, or maybe I'll try and you just correct me what I am. So imagine um, you would want to convert. An institute and normal, normal as like I don't know if any institute is normal, but you know, like regular yeah. research institution that's like in its infancy of thinking about open science into open science um, institute. So to put the label open science on it. So basically you need first of all, you need to have very committed mission and vision, right? Where you uh-huh. say, okay, we are doing this now, and this is who we are, this is our identity. Then, okay, you always have to have some money for, for starting something. But regardless of that, um, you also create the best possible excellent science. So it's attractive to work there and attractive for co- collaboration. Uh-huh. And, um, and then you decide, you basically um, take, you are the decider on the terms of the collaboration, right? Saying basically, this has to be open. If you want to collaborate with us, yes, but the, it's a certain framework that needs to be applied. Yes. And and then you create the tools and support structures to apply those tools. So in your case, the repository and having your position and others in the Tanbaum Institute to support the
1: researchers with making things open. That right? is a pretty good summary. Yes. What the okay. strategy that I've been developing uh, since I undertook my position follows that pretty accurately. So generally the way that it goes is we find some project or some major initiative at another institute that's already going open or wants to go open we support them in making in realizing that both through funds as well as through uh, facilitating collaborations with our own researchers the point there is to not only build more open science infrastructure or policies or best practices to uh, create connections between the neuro and that institute as well as to empower the local science champions and then through that try to convince the leadership that like look this open science thing is a better way of doing things it's really of value to you so getting the leadership on board we can then say all right we're now going to fund a buy-in process for you so you can take a year a little bit shorter than we did, but we're going to help you out with it, to consult, to identify and consult with relevant stakeholders to identify challenges and barriers and needs and develop some kind of implementation plan. And then if, once they've gone through that process and they have their own set of open science principles, then we have some recurring funding that we can, it's not too much, but it's recurring funding that we can, you know, funnel to them every year to support their Ongoing open science activities.
2: Okay, but the key is definitely to have this this committed leadership, which you had from the beginning, basically, and yes. this is now to kind of convert um, the non the skeptics, or not skeptics, but the uh, maybe willing but not yet um, able leaders to actually go into full open science.
1: One hundred percent. Yeah, it convincing the leadership. Does that work well? It's working slowly, but surely. So the first one that really, you know, grabbed onto this and took it is the Douglas Institute, the Douglas Mental Health Research Institute, which is also a McGill affiliated institute. They looked over and saw that we were doing, they specialize in mental health, whereas we're specializing more in neurological diseases. And they said, this seems like the best way to do it because they're encountering a lot of the same problems, namely that really good and effective treatments for mental health diseases or mental health disorders don't really exist and haven't been coming on, haven't been being discovered and developed. So they've recognized that what we need to do isn't just to continue beating our heads against the problem in the same way, but to change the way we go about solving these problems. So that was the first real taker, and they're going through a buy-in process right now. I meet every, I meet regularly with the project lead for their buy-in process to help them, give them experience from how the neuro did it, and to help them design their own uh, buy-in process. And we're reaching out to a number of other institutes. We may be being able to get something like this going at the newly kind of constituted Western Institute for Neuroscience. There's a lot of hope there. And a lot of it with the other institutes is really trying to build relationships with the leadership and with local open science champions to try to convince them, let's do it.
2: Hmm. What about the patients? Because you mentioned in the beginning, I mean, it's all... um the ultimate goal is really to to understand the disease and to be able to treat it right so how do patients come in into the picture and i'm thinking more you know our definition of open science is not just the sharing of resources and sharing of data and um you know open access sharing knowledge but like really also having this component of sharing to everybody so it's not just peer-to-peer but like really to the world right and then of course you have groups like, for example, patients. In this case, um, how do you work with them?
1: Do you at all? We do. Um, so we have a number of patient representatives. If you go to the Neuro website and search around a little bit, you'll find a couple of people, a couple of pieces written by Ingrid Kovic, who's a patient who's been involved in with the development of CBIG from the very beginning, and with patients. There's a big patient presence at the neuro because it's also a clinical research. Or it's also a clinical institution, so they're you know, treating patients all the time, and it goes from the practical. So, let's say we want to get patients to consent to have samples and data included in CBig. How do we have a consent process that makes sure they're both informed and isn't super onerous? Because um, we don't want them. Someone with ALS or someone with Parkinson's to have to come into the Institute multiple different times, because there may be um, either risks or just inconveniences associated with them doing so. So by working with them, we were able to design a consent procedure and train the people in the clinical research unit to consult with and approach patients during downtime while they're there for normal clinic visits, instead of having the normal, you know, call for patients with ALS who want to contribute to this new research initiative, which has been surprisingly successful. It's led to uh, over 20,000 samples being collected Mm. from patients just in the last couple of years. Um, And then beyond the practical, there's the ideological, where most patients don't know and aren't told that open isn't the way that science normally operates they don't realize that when they contribute to a particular research study, it's not being shared in the way that maximizes the utility of their data or their sample to the scientific world, to solving the problem of their disease that ultimately is the reason they want to contribute to these kind of efforts in the first place. So once you tell patients that kind of thing, they a light goes off and they go like, okay, this obviously seems like the best way to do things. How can I help? And there are a number of um, like patient philanthropic organizations, um, including ALS Canada and the primary, I forget exactly the name, but the primary Huntington's Philanthropic Association in Canada that are starting to adopt open science Principles and open science funding policies in the research that are in the funding that they provide to researchers. So it's a whole multifaceted engagement process that goes from the ideological all the way down to the most practical in terms of when would be the most convenient and effective to approach you when you're coming in for your normal clinic visit.
2: So um, how is the open science landscape in Canada and why don't we hear more about it here in Europe at least, or maybe here in Berlin, or maybe just here in my office room, (laughs) but you know.
1: No, I mean, Canada, both Canada and the neuro share some difficulties in terms of one, we often aren't as, you know, go get Volatile, you know, let's try the new disruptive synergistic, all those business buzzwords things. Um, we generally take a bit more of a slow boil approach. So, the Neuro is one example of that. The Canadian Open Neuroscience Platform is another example of that. Both of them have been running for a couple of years now and have kind of been concentrating on just, you know, building capacity and doing our own thing without really systematically evangelizing and getting the word out there. And and this is, this is on us, not um, documenting and communicating how we did it and what we're doing as effectively as we possibly could. Because one of the things that you need to do for open science to be successful is to not just build something, but then release it openly and tell people in an accessible way, how it is that you built the thing, and how they can either use it or adapt it to their own approach. This is, once again, taking the logic of open science and applying it to how open science itself is being developed. And we haven't been doing that as effectively as we possibly could. And two, there are open science things going on in Canada distributed around multiple different institutes But one of the real sticking points or failure points has been the lack of identifying all of them and kind of binding them together into a unified voice, which is something that I'm really concentrating on in my work. I don't want to come in and say, look, this is open science. This is what the neuro did. This is exactly what you have to do. And if you don't, then you're not doing open science. But I really. It
2: wouldn't work in science. It wouldn't work in open science either. A a scientist going, like, what?
1: No. 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah. I really think that if Tosi and the neuro is going to have the greatest effect, it's not going to be in defining open science in some perfect way and then saying that everybody else has to do it. It's going to be as a node for coordination and facilitation between those who are already interested and convinced by the ideas of open science, and then to make sure that everybody who needs to be talking to everybody else can, that they can figure out ways of mutually reinforcing one another's efforts and creating a combined voice, because having a whole bunch of separate voices out feeling like they're the only ones out in the wilderness is far less effective than having a a unified voice. One example of this, and I promise I won't keep talking for too long, is right now I'm trying to organize a kind of collaborative effort between McGill, the Douglas, and a couple of groups at Western to adopt a common data standard. They're doing electrophysiology, neuroelectrophysiology research. And one of the keys of that's going to make open science effective is making sure that when they produce data and share data, they're doing it using the same format so that it's interoperable. Everything can be easily compared. You don't want people to be, to use like a dumbed down example, you don't want people to be sharing some in a PDF, some in a plain text file, some in a .doc format, some in a .docx format, some in a Libra doc format, because then the the amount of work required to combine everything together is uh, almost insurmountable, especially for people who are busy doing other things. So Based on a suggestion from one of the researchers at the Neuro about trying to adopt a common data standard called the NeuroData Without Borders Standard, primarily kind of evangelized and developed by the Kavli Foundation, um, I reached out to a group, a platform that was being set up at the Douglas and a platform and a repository that was being set up in Western and just got people talking to one another and saying, look, this is something that is useful for all of you and something that if all of you got together and had a joint funding proposal is going to be way more likely to get funded than each of you going after your own individual pieces and then in the end finding that actually the way that group A has done it isn't really doesn't mesh really well with the way that group B has done it and doesn't allow you to easily input data into the repository that group C has developed.
0: Hmm.
2: No, that's—I mean—that's the one of the uh, the holy grails of open data, right? To have the data in a format that everybody can actually use, because it just doesn't matter if it's open if you cannot use it, because you don't have the software to run it. You, whatever, I mean, like you cannot open it because it's on the CD in your drawer. I mean, yes, this is why <laughs> the, c- the drawer is open. But yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. this is why open and fair, as in the fair yeah. principles, have to be considered together, because you can yeah. have you can share things, but if it's not in a format that people can understand or can people can use or that there are standard preferably open source programs that people can use to be able to you know generate discoveries or do machine learning on it or whatever then it, you're just recreating the same siloed approach but being able to say look we're open you can technically access it it's a lot of work to be able to do but ultimately it's 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 worth it because we're in the middle of possibly the most important advance in the philosophy of science and how science is done since the enlightenment that's what we're creating right now and so it it, the reason to do so is because ultimately it's going to lead to a better way of interacting and communing and unreal under uh, unveiling the mysteries of the universe itself
0: struck me about this interview was the fact that open science is actually really coming from the necessity of needing to advance neurological disease research, and that that's where open science comes from. So it comes. It seems like uh, Dylan was a total open science advocate, but that it was really coming from this main self, uh, focus of scientific advancement. So I think that that kind of leads back to what you were just saying before about the question of resistance, that If, if it's, you know, if you come to the point where you're not, you're not really having any breakthroughs, and you need more data, and you need more collaboration, that that that's kind of the leading factor of everything. So open science, then just makes sense. And that's, you know, then you're not resist to it.
2: Yeah, like open science as a way to fix science. Right,
0: right. And to advance science.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's what Ulrich Jenhager and the Quest Center, right? That's what he's also talking about, that open science is basically just good science. Right. Um, it's nothing like, it's nothing political about it. It's just a good way of doing science.
0: Exactly. High quality science. Yeah. Exactly. And using, and using the possibilities that the digital age offers us with being able to have way more data and be able to access that faster and yeah. have more people have it available to them. Well,
2: it's also because we do science in a different way now as well. I mean, not just um, like open, closed, proprietary, or like however you want to call it, uh, but also with the, the basically the big, um, the high throughput technologies, big data, uh, the quantification strategies. I mean, all this that plays in that was not possible, well, before internet, basically, which seems like not so long time ago, but it's actually like a lot of years. No, it was really, um, really cool interview because it's so positive. You can actually do it. And it's not, I mean, it takes a lot of effort and it takes some money and it takes some dedication, but it's not impossible. And I really like this idea of, um, yeah, if you have, if you kind of have this label of we are Open Science Institute, then of course, whoever wants to work there has to. We attracted attract is that kind of vision. So it kind of creates more momentum for open science as well, because you we attract certain people.
0: Exactly. That was also the idea that he, he was talking about the unified voice, right? Not that everybody is just like the lonely wolf out there fighting or an advocate for open science, but combining your efforts. And uh, I thought that was a nice, a nice image. Well, that was it for today. Um, thanks for listening. If you have any comments or would like to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at OOSP underscore Pod or write us an email, orion at mdc-berlin.de.
2: The music was composed and produced by Fabio de Miguel. Sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira. And the podcast is brought to you by the Orion Open Science Project, which is funded by the European
0: Commission. Meet you next time. See ya, Bye.